We turn to Proverbs chapter 17. We read this passage in connection with the ninth commandment. And the ninth commandment simply is thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We hear the inspired word of God in Proverbs 17. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causes shame and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. A wicked doer giveth heed to false lips and a liar giveth ear to a naughty tongue. Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker. And he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. Excellent speech becometh not a fool, much less do lying lips a prince. A gift is as a precious stone in the eyes of him that hath it. Whithersoever it turneth, it prospereth. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. A reproof entered more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. An evil man seeketh only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, wherefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both, are an abomination to the Lord. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. He loveth transgression that loveth strife, and he that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. He that hath a froward heart findeth no good, and he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Wisdom is before him that hath understanding, but the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. Also to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 43.
question and answers 112 in the back of our Psalter on page 24, which addresses the ninth commandment. Question 112. What is required in the ninth commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words. That I be no backbiter nor slanderer. That I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard. But that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil. Unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. Also, that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, our lives are characterized by transgressions. A transgression is a stepping over the boundary of the law. And the result is not only we offend God, but we hurt one another. And we do damage to the church of Jesus Christ. Gossip and backbiting has long been an evil that has plagued the church of Jesus Christ. Already during the Bible times, we have repeated references to this sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Sins of the tongue. James devotes an entire chapter Chapter 3 of his epistle, to warn of the unbridled tongue that ran through the church like a wild horse, creating strife, division, and war. And he warns about the tongue and the control of the tongue. The Apostle Paul, in in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, warns about those who were busybodies. They had quit their work. They were looking for the return of Jesus, and as a result, they were, in the meantime, falling prey to the sin of gossip, the sin of slander. Through the epistles of Ephesians and Timothy, we find repeated warnings concerning the tongue. Some have boldly declared that there is no sin more common in the church than this sin, violation of the ninth commandment. And so we do well to take heed to the instruction that's given. The book of Proverbs, as you're well aware, contrasts the fool with the one who's wise. It contrasts godly living with the way of wickedness. We look at the ninth commandment in light of Proverbs 17, verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. Those who repeat are busy violating the ninth commandment with their gossip, their evil report. They're contrasted with those who cover. Now, every child of God knows the trouble that is created by these sins in your own life, in the life of your family, and in the life of the church. And so we look at the practices here that are evaluated in verse 9, covering and repeating. Those who cover are acting in love. They're walking in a manner that reflects their desire for peace, unity, and love within the church of Jesus Christ. Those who repeat are walking in hatred toward God and toward the neighbor. You and I are called to control our tongue. We're called to be those who 
cover the transgression. Those who seek love. And so we ask ourselves, is my tongue being used to promote fellowship? Is it used to promote love? Or is my tongue being used in the service of the devil? And for that, then, we repent. We look at the ninth commandment, the basic principle, the prohibition, and the demand. The basic principle has to do with the reality of the good gift that God has given to man of speech. This is one of the greatest gifts that God gave to man. There are many wonderful gifts that we stand in awe of. As we look at the creation about us, as we look at how God marvelously formed and fashioned man, the gift of speech stands out as one of the greatest. It enables us to be able to fellowship with God, to fellowship with one another, and it stands at the very essence of our being. We are creatures who communicate. And how would we communicate without this gift? Now, sometimes we come into contact with those who cannot speak, those who cannot hear, and we're reminded what a precious gift this is from God. And it's remarkable how such individuals yet learn to overcome those weaknesses. They learn yet to communicate in marvelous and remarkable ways. And we stand in awe of the grace that God gives to those individuals. And we're ashamed of how often we take this gift for granted. But God spoke and God gave to man the gift of speech so that man could respond to the living God. And God created Adam and Eve then in such a way that they could enjoy communication, fellowship with him. The speech of man was always in response to God. God would speak and man would respond. And God would speak his glorious word, his wondrous promises, and man would respond to that wonder. Now that good gift was lost through the fall. The curse that came on the human race in response to the fall of Adam and Eve resulted in man hearing only one word, and that's, thou shalt surely die. The word of death came upon the whole of creation. God hid his glorious word from man. And man now spoke the language of the devil and communicated with the devil. So that instead of using this good gift for the glory of God and to engage in communion with the living God, man now uses this gift for himself. And he uses it tragically in the service of the devil. Now God didn't remove himself from creation, but God gave his word to prophets. And those prophets were commanded to speak that word in order to warn God's people. As that word was spoken, men rejected it. They hated the word. They despised it. God alone is able to work the wonder of grace in the hearts of his children that we receive that word and that we are thankful for that word and that we use it then in a way that's good and right. And all of that points to the wonder by which God restores this good gift with his people. God restores this good gift in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we now have the gift of communication with God. We know him. In Jesus Christ, who is the word come into human flesh, we now are able to know the restoration of this communion, this fellowship. This gift of speech, originating in paradise, lost in the fall, restored in Jesus Christ, is crucial to covenant friendship and covenant fellowship. 
In order for us to enjoy friendship with God, communication is necessary. For us to enjoy communication with each other, we need to have the ability to communicate, to talk, to enjoy that fellowship. And so God gives this gift of speech. He gives us tongues. And he enables us to use those tongues. And even when God does not give that gift to some, the importance of communication is seen in that those individuals yet learn to overcome their weaknesses and they learn to read lips, they learn sign language, they learn to write. Man invents ways to communicate. And such communication is necessary for relationships. Now God comes to you and God comes to me and says, I gave you this good gift. You squandered it in Adam, but I've restored it now in Christ. And you are now to use this good gift for the glory and honor of my name. Use it rightly. Use your tongue not to lie. Don't use your tongue to blaspheme and to backbite and to slander. Use your tongue to speak the truth and to do so in a manner that reflects the love with which I loved you. Use the gift of speech as my children and use it to speak my word. Use it to maintain and to defend the truth. Use speech to be a sharp, forceful, precise thing with regard to theology and with regard to the understanding of God's word. And use the gift of speech to confess the truth, to walk uprightly, and to speak in love. Use this gift to confess sin. Now, first of all, beloved, this is a word I need to hear as a pastor and a preacher. Hundreds of sermons could be preached from this pulpit. That might be nice sermons, agreeable perhaps to most, but rather colorless. They're not distinctively biblical. They're not distinctively reformed. They don't set forth sin like they ought. They don't set forth the gospel and the wonder of the gospel like they should. The word of God must be preached and set forth in all of its power. This good gift of language needs to be used in order to sound forth the word of God. That God might be glorified and praised and that his people might be edified and built up. And so that preaching needs to be distinctive. It needs to be biblical. It needs to be reformed, not ambiguous. And as the truth lives in our hearts and as that truth pulses through our veins. Our desire is to glorify and honor God and therefore to set forth the truth of God's word in all of its power, even though that truth may step on toes, it may convict, it may rouse some to hatred and to persecution even. But the glory of God is our motivation, a glory that exposes our own sin and that sets forth the necessity of reconciliation through the blood of the cross. In all our relations, broadening beyond that with each other, we need to promote the truth. Now, you know and I know the truth hurts. Sometimes it's hard for us to tell someone the truth. They ask us a question. We're tempted to lie. The truth is going to result in hatred sometimes. We're going to be branded at times because of the truth. The ninth commandment calls us to use the word with faithfulness and with boldness. And we think of, through the ages, men and women who are willing to give their lives for the sake of the truth of God's word, standing with boldness, even at the threat of being killed 
but willing to do so because they love the truth and they would not speak anything other than the truth. May God grant us that courage. Not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of boldness. A spirit to be faithful. A spirit not to be worried about the consequences, but to trust God with the consequences as we set forth the word. God has given the good gift of language. God enables us by the Spirit now to know Christ and the wonder of salvation in Him. And flowing out of that then, God gives us this good gift of speech to use it for His glory and for the building up of His body. Practically, that means then that we need to stop talking so much about each other. We need to use this gift in a manner that reflects love, not hatred. And so that gets at now the sinful abuse. The sinful abuse of this commandment at heart is an abuse of this good gift that God has given. Instead of using this gift in order to communicate with God and to build one another up in love, we use this gift to cut other people down and to try and make ourselves look better. We use this gift to lie. Now, why do we lie? We twist the truth. We want ourselves to look better, and we desire that others look worse. And by others looking worse, we then are going to, in our estimation, climb higher to the top. Instead of using this gift in a manner that gives glory to God, We're tempted by the devil to use it in a way that promotes sin. And so we must not lie. We must not pick up the phone in order to talk to someone. We must not be quick to tell rumors, to spread gossip. We need to keep our tongues under control by God's grace. Why tell others something you just heard about someone else? What is your motive? Is it love? Is it to build up? Is it for the glory of God? What will you gain by spreading this information that you just found? You say, but it's the truth. I'm convinced it's truth. Therefore, I want to tell others about it. What good is it going to serve your relationship with that person? How is it going to serve your relationship to God? How is it going to reflect love for the brother, the sister. Notice the emphasis throughout this chapter in Proverbs, and we find this throughout the book of Proverbs, but especially this idea of the emphasis on keeping quiet, not being quick to speak. Verses 26 and 28, repeat it. The idea is emphasized that it's better. Or verse 27, He that hath knowledge spareth his words. And then in verse 28, even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. He that shutteth his lips. Rather than being quick to talk, being careful. We can hurt one another horribly. And we know that. We know how words have affected us and how what other people have said has hurt us. That starts in our homes. Perhaps it's something your mother, your father said. Maybe it's something a sibling said. Maybe it's something a child said with regard to his or her parents. We hurt each other horribly. And we say things that later we regret. 
Then we have to go and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. We are to guard our tongues as to what we say, how we say it, and what we do in response. This practice happens at school. How much hurt is caused in school, grade school, junior high, high school, with sins of the tongue? You talk about others behind their back. You talk about them not in a way that's promoting love, but a way that's evil. And you say things that are foolish, that are wicked. Your motivation is because you want others to laugh, maybe, or you want others to think more highly of yourself. You spread the wicked comments of others. Someone else, maybe, is getting promoted to a spot that you used to occupy. Maybe they're starting now on the team this next game instead of you. What is your calling before God? Esteem others above self. Instead, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted now to gossip, to slander, to speak evil of that person. Rather than showing love, showing concern, showing care, or keeping quiet, we're motivated instead by anger, motivated perhaps by jealousy, and we then sin with our tongue. Maybe someone is going through a difficult time in their life, and things are going on in their family or in their home. How do we show love toward them? How do we show kindness toward them? Do we do that by spreading information, gossiping, slandering, backbiting, talking about them behind their back? Are we showing love toward God and toward the neighbor? Do you know how badly you can hurt someone with your tongue? How badly you can isolate them and make them feel as though now they are of no value, that they have no worth? Perhaps we hear something about someone what they did on the weekend, a party that they were at where they ought not have been, things that they did that they shouldn't have done. We're tempted to talk about it. The Bible says keep quiet. Go to that person instead. Express your concern. That's what Proverbs 17, 9 here is talking about. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. Now we know there's way more serious of consequences than just separating friends. It violates God's will. Therefore, it's an affront against God and against His majesty. But this is the concrete reality. If you're going to be talking and you're going to be spewing things that you know and you've heard about others, you are not going to have any friends pretty soon. Those who are around you are going to ask the question, if he or she is willing to talk about that person, What's going to keep them from talking about me tomorrow? So that pretty soon, friends are separated. Offenses are created. And now instead of communion, instead of sweet friendship within the church, there's division. And the devil is filled with glee. So what do we do? Do we keep on talking? So long as we have people to listen, we keep on spreading matters? That's gossip. God condemns such. He says that's hatred toward God and it's hatred toward that person. Instead, pray for them. Instead, visit them if you're concerned about their life, their walk. Go talk to them. This commandment, beloved, requires of us that we never say anything bad about someone's person. 
Never. That's the point that the catechism here is making when it forbids all backbiting, slander, and judging or joining and condemning any man rashly or unheard. We never say anything bad about their person without them having opportunity to interact or to respond. We don't say anything bad about their person. Not about a minister, not about a teacher, not about a classmate, not about a parent. Never may we say anything bad about one's person. Something that would make that person look worse in the eyes of someone else. But you say, what about sin? We need to expose sin, don't we? Don't we need to pass judgment on sin or false doctrine? Yes, we do. And we're called to condemn sin. We're called to condemn the lie. We do it in a manner that's careful. We condemn the sin without addressing the person in an evil manner. We condemn the sin. We condemn the lie. But we don't do it in a way of speaking evil of the person to others. Now, sometimes we have to condemn that false doctrine publicly. And sometimes there's even a place to put forth names of individuals in order that the congregation, that others be warned. Paul did that throughout his epistles. 2 Peter 2, other places provide examples of specific doctrines and specific false teachings being condemned publicly. People need to be warned. But the minister may not speak evil of the character of the person. In other words, he doesn't say, that man is a worthless, that man's a good-for-nothing person. That person treats his wife sinfully. That person has cheated these people. That person can't be trusted. We have to be careful. We condemn the sins that are being conducted, but we're careful about the person. That one may be a child of God. That one may be one who's an elect child, chosen by God from eternity. We speak, we preach, we write against error, against sin. But we're careful with regard to the person. As we acknowledge that God is the one who is able to make that one repent and turn. And so when we hear someone speaking evil of a person, even if that person is a minister from a pulpit, we have to talk to that one. We have to say, no, that's not love. That's not the manner in which we're to conduct ourselves with our lips. We warn against false teaching. We warn against godly living. We don't speak evil of a person. We condemn the doctrine. We condemn the sin. We pray for that person. We pray that God may be pleased to bring that one to repentance. We're to cover transgressions. We're always doing one of two things. Either we're covering or we're repeating. The idea of covering is not that we would cover them up in order to conceal it so that the sin is not dealt with or addressed. That's not biblical. Now that happens today. Tragically, it's even happened in the church in the past. And it's important that we take measures to make sure that that kind of concealing, that kind of cover-up doesn't happen. We have businesses, governments trying to cover things up, and then the media gets involved and exposes it as a big scam and as a cover-up. We may not cover up sin. Sin needs to be exposed, and sin needs to be dealt with. But it needs to be dealt with in a right manner. And that sin then needs to be dealt with in a manner that covers transgressions. 
Now we understand the importance of this. And you children, you young people need to know this too. If someone has sinned against you, they need to be addressed with regard to that sin. And maybe you need help. If someone has touched you inappropriately, if someone has done something to you that made you uncomfortable, they may make threats against you, but you need to deal with that matter. And you need to tell your parents, tell someone that you can trust so that that matter is dealt with. How can a sinner be helped? if they continue in sin. Their sin needs to be exposed so that they can be helped. Now, not necessarily made public, but exposed in a manner that their sin is made known to others so that then that sinner can be dealt with and be brought to repentance. In contrast to that, we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were proud. They were constantly covering sins. They would not repent. They would not admit weaknesses. They wouldn't admit sin. They were always projecting themselves as standing above others. They didn't confess. They tried to cover. That's not the biblical perspective. We need to expose sin and sinners so that they can get help from the church or from the state or wherever. In a few moments, we'll get at more of the positive aspect of this command. But we know the result of the sin, the sin of exposing and spreading. Very friends are separated. Again, you know that from your own experience. What happens when someone comes to you and says, you know what someone is saying about that person? Do you know what they're saying about this one? And they share it with you, and then they leave. And now, what are you supposed to do with that information? They were a talebearer, and now you know something that you just as soon not know. They did not walk in love toward you. They didn't walk in love toward the one that they were speaking of. Now that you know that matter, now there's tension between you and that person because of that knowledge. What is our calling then? Our calling is to go to that one, to talk to that one. The talebearer sets on fire matters. And that's the warning throughout the scriptures. A fire is lit in the school. A fire is lit in the home. A fire is lit in the church. A fire is lit in society. The tongue as an unbridled wild horse runs and causes all kinds of disruption, all kinds of problems. That disrupts friendship with God. And the only way that friendship can be restored is in the way of genuine repentance and sorrow. How hard is it to acknowledge our sin in that regard? How hard is it for us to acknowledge, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that? The same pride that leads us into transgression also stands in the way of humility and confession before God. But that which makes repentance and that which makes confession all the more difficult is when an idle tongue spreads those actions all over. How much harder then the matter now is to deal with and to confess. We may already be filled with shame because of our actions. Now that shame is spread to all of our friends. Now it's spread to the whole church. And now everybody's talking about us behind our back. Again, we need to keep quiet. This is the work of the devil. There's no love in that kind of action except a love for sin, a love for the works of the devil. Those who repeat transgressions 
who walk in backbiting and slander bring down the heavy wrath of God upon them. God will judge. These sins are hard for the church to deal with. It's hard for elders to confront these sins. The calling of elders is to address this sin just as all of the other sins. It's hard for these sins to be exposed and dealt with, but they need to be dealt with as seriously as do other sins. But positively, what is our calling then as we stand before God? He that covereth a transgression seeketh love. To cover is to keep the matter as private as possible. That's what the catechism means when the catechism says that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. So frequently we hear someone talking maybe and we hear them saying something and we think, but that can't be the case. We can't believe that it really could be true. We don't hear the other side. We're shocked about it. Rather than going to the source, we continue to spread it around. That's what's forbidden here. Don't do that. When someone comes to you and they share something with you that you shouldn't have known in the first place, you say, no, I don't want to hear it. You ought not be spreading that around. Now that I know it, it's too late. Now what do I do? Now I have an obligation to go to that one. And I need to talk to that brother. I need to talk to that sister. And here's where maybe we have to get our parents involved. If parents and teenagers would follow this practice, it would eliminate so much strife within our schools and among our teenagers. Go take the matter up with the individual. Talk with the parents. Resolve the matter. Confess, repent, and then the matter is finished. The ninth commandment requires that of us, that we keep sins as private as legitimately as possible. Some are public by their very nature, and they're going to be addressed by the church, and the church has to deal with it. But the vast majority of sins committed are private and only known to a handful. First, the one who walks in love with his tongue promotes the good of his neighbor then by keeping the matter private. He doesn't repeat it. He heard it, perhaps, and so now that one follows the practice of Matthew 18. Go to the parents. Go to the individual. Talk with them. If the brother transgresses against us, we go and we show our fault between him and us alone. We keep it between the two of us, if at all possible. Now, if that doesn't work, then we have to take another along, as Matthew 18 elaborates. Again, keeping it as private as we can. And our desire is to bring the brother to repentance. We're seeking love. We're seeking the love of God as that love might be shown to this one who's walking in sin. And we're seeking to live faithfully so that fellowship and communion can be restored within our relationship. Our desire is that the sin be covered through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we direct the one who's transgressed, the one who's offended, to Christ, to the wonder of forgiveness. We pledge ourselves to be a faithful friend, to assist them, to stand by their side, to help keep them accountable. They need assistance. And we keep the matter as private as we can, encouraging one another in the glorious truth of our Savior. He who covered my sin, he who bore it to the cross, he who carried it and paid for it, 
in full. That's the true beautiful covering. And that's the covering in which we rejoice. And that's the covering that we desire others also know. He covered my sin so fully that God no more remembers that sin. What a beautiful wonder. Our sins are completely cast off. They're taken care of in such a way that God will not hold them ever against us. And it's that spirit then that motivates us. We receive the repentance. We are not going to hold that sin ever against that one. We're not going to bring it up again. If God forgets it and casts it off, is it right then for me to remember it and to bring it up? And so in our marriages, in our relationships, in our families, in the church, we pray for this grace that we can address matters, that we can do so openly, honestly, in love, that matters can be confessed, and then that matters can be dropped. Confessing that Christ has covered it. What a beautiful experience, beloved, in the church of Jesus Christ. You've seen this. You've experienced it. Someone falls into sin. Others rise to that one's defense. They cover the transgression. They keep it as private as possible. The brother is brought to sorrow, repentance for the sin. Quickly that one is restored within the church. And the fellow saints view it as past history. It's not brought up again. That person is not dealt with according to the manner of their previous transgressions. It's gone. And the word of God commends these actions as the way in which we show obedience and faithfulness to the ninth commandment. We are commanded to seek love. The wicked, they seek rebellion. The idea in Proverbs 17 here is to seek it in the way of aiming at it and walking toward it. That takes effort. This takes energy. The child of God aims at love and the child of God is intent on pursuing love. Keeping matters. Maintaining friendship. Drawing brothers and sisters closer to one another. Now we realize as regards sexual sins, the church similarly deals with the sinner personally. There's often a need for the church to make a judgment more quickly, perhaps even to expose the sin, to expose the sinner, so that more victims can be found out. Out of love for the individual involved, that the sins cease and that full repentance is made. There are times when the matter must be made more public, more quickly. But whether or not the sin is made public or dealt with in a private matter is not our own personal call to make. God leaves this to be the judgment of the church through her consistory. The consistory weighs the various factors with regard to the sin, the nature of the sin, the matter of the sinner, a love for the sinner, a desire for repentance, and a desire for reconciliation. And the church then carefully works through the matter in a manner that will serve the glory of God and the good of all involved. Beloved, the only way that you and I can walk in love with our tongues is because of the marvelous covenant love that God has shown to us. God has embraced you and me in love from eternity by virtue of the decree of election. In time, Jesus Christ took you and Jesus Christ brings you into fellowship and communion with the living God. He gives you His Spirit. He gives you His life. 
He makes you his friend. He covers your sins with his precious blood. And there is no greater joy than to know that I am found in Christ. I'm not my own. I belong. And he has bought me with his precious blood. There is no greater wealth or joy than a man, a woman, or child can experience than knowing I am a friend of Jesus Christ. And he walks with me and he preserves me and he keeps me. And he's not going to deal with me unlovingly. He's going to walk with me in love. Now within that covenant friendship that I have with Jesus Christ, I pray for the grace to use my tongue in a manner that serves his glory, that builds the church, and that shows love for the neighbor. The power by which you and I can walk in obedience is found in the power by which God has forgiven you and the power by which God has loved you and covered your transgressions. It's the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the wonder of God's grace. God's grace, His love is my treasure. And having that love and having that grace, I seek to live in fellowship and communion with Him and with others. If God in love sought me out and covered my sins, then why would I not be busy seeking the good of my neighbors and seeking and willing to forgive even as I've been forgiven? Beloved, this is the essence of the covenant. And I want to talk a few moments about the truth of the covenant as it pertains to this important aspect of our lives. The covenant, as we're aware, is the cornerstone of Reformed theology. In the past weeks, we've talked about the covenant and the significance of the covenant, the beauty of the covenant. Jehovah God, in His faithfulness, has preserved our churches in a right understanding of the covenant. That the covenant is not some kind of an agreement between God and man. The covenant is an unconditional covenant. God established that covenant. God preserves it. God maintains it. This is a covenant by which God takes us into fellowship and communion with himself and he preserves us. It's not just a promise, it's more than a promise. It's the heart of God's love and communion and fellowship with God. So precious, this truth is. We know God as our friend. We don't live every day scared and in fear of what God's going to do to us. We walk with God. We talk with God. We communicate with God. We pray to God. We read His Word. We respond to it. If there is anyone in the church world who knows what it means to live in covenant fellowship with God, beloved, it ought to be us who know the beauty of God's covenant and who know the riches of God's unconditional love and favor. Now, what a monstrosity to have this beautiful view of the covenant but then we're not walking in love toward God or toward the neighbor. If that's the case, then all of our confession with regard to doctrine and orthodoxy is just a big show. It's just a bunch of noise. It doesn't mean anything. There's no substance. Our orthodoxy then is dead. Beloved, knowing God and knowing the beauty of communion with God, knowing the wonder of His love, we live out of that covenant fellowship. And we live that covenant fellowship very practically 
with one another in our marriage, in our family, at school, in the church. That covenant life shows that we love the truth, we stand for the truth, we live in communion and fellowship one with another, and we pursue the truth at all costs. We love God, and we love the neighbor, and we show it. We guard our tongue. We seek to be faithful stewards of the gifts that God has given. We walk in love and in faithfulness, busy defending, promoting God and His name, but also our neighbor's name. Sometimes we hear the accusation that the prosperous reformed people, they've got their doctrine correct, but they don't know how to live. Beloved, we need to prove them wrong in this regard. Having the doctrine of the covenant We must live out of that doctrine. And the work of Jesus Christ by His Spirit is such that you not only confess the joy of the covenant as the cornerstone of theology, but that we live the covenant in our homes. We live the covenant in our schools. And we live the covenant in our church community. We walk in love. We walk in fellowship toward God and toward the neighbor. And when we sin, we confess our sin. We acknowledge our errors. We pray for the grace to control our tongue. We desire to walk meekly, humbly with one another. Acknowledging we are what we are by a wonder of God's grace. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. So easily, so quickly, we use this good gift in the service of our own pride our own self-seeking, and we fall prey to the devil. Strengthen us that we might truly love thee, that we might walk in love one toward another, and that thou wilt use thy word and the wonder of thy grace in our hearts and in our lives as a powerful power for good one toward another, that we might build one another up, that we might esteem one another, And that with our tongues, thy name might be exalted and magnified. And that evidence of it might be seen in homes that enjoy blessed fellowship and communion. In schools where we walk and live together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And in a church where we live in the body as believers rejoicing in the precious union that thou hast given us. In Christ. Amen.